A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. From climate change to gun control to voting rights, how involved should companies get in politics? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show. As China's state control over big tech grows, trillions of dollars in market value are at stake. It's a bad time to be the top entrepreneur in China. And crypto marketplace Coinbase is preparing to list in New York. We take a look at the hidden costs of Bitcoin. The annual carbon footprint of Hong Kong, that's an awful lot of carbon to emit for a currency that, you know, when it comes to actually buying and selling things, is still a pretty fringe business. First, for the past century, Republicans have been seen as the party of big business in America and Democrats as the party of labour. And though the divide has never been tidy, that old order is being torn up as the line between politics and business blurs beyond recognition. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, long a champion of big business, warned recently... My advice to the corporate CEOs of America is to stay out of politics. Don't pick sides in these big fights. And yet, companies of all sizes are under tremendous pressure, especially from the left, not just to pick a side on a huge array of issues, but to come out and fight for it. America's political war really is shifting onto the Constitution and Georgia has passed a law that some say restricts voting rights. Patrick Fowles is The Economist business affairs editor. Joe Biden, the president, has objected to this strongly and now companies are objecting too and saying that they will resist both the law in Georgia and any similar attempts to implement legislation elsewhere. And a large number of CEOs have signed a public letter to that effect. Now, that particular episode is part of a bigger pattern of of business in the US getting more involved in politics. So you have CEOs like Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan, publish manifestos which contain detailed proposals about government policy. Uh, You have the Business Roundtable, a big lobbying group arguing that firms should be patriotic and, and serve all stakeholders, not just their owners. And you have CEOs being asked to intervene and make public statements on a vast array of social issues and and face the accusation that if they're silent, it represents complicity. It's a a sort of extension of the political war in America into the corporate sphere. Now, companies have probably never been fully apolitical. Do you see this as a significant break with history? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the US is it's where the separation of business and corporations was pioneered. So in the first half of the 19th century, uh, the idea emerged that in order to create a company, you didn't need a specific charter license by the government. So anyone could create a firm more or less for any any purpose they saw uh, fit. That sort of ideal in practice um, has never been as, as clear cut. So you've had you know, the kind of freewheeling crony capitalism of the Gilded Age uh, around the turn of the 20th century. After the Second World War, you you had a much more corporatist 
cooperative attitude and then that morphed into the, the sort of modern era of, of shareholder value plus plus lobbying of government. So uh, I think the ideal of, of trying to separate the operation of democracy and government from business has always been there, or, although the implementation has, has varied a lot over time. Now, as you've said, there are immediate developments that companies are reacting to and listeners must tune into our sister podcast, Checks and Balance, on Friday for a deeper dive into how the fight over voting rights in Georgia is playing out in C-suites. But looking beyond the immediate, the mood has been changing for a while and what's been driving that change? Well, I think there's several underlying factors. One is a sort of heightened sense of political consciousness in the US. So a lot of consumers and uh, workers are, are pushing for companies to endorse uh, viewpoints that they that they hold dearly. That's one thing. The second thing is the the ESG movement uh, in the asset management industry, which is being pushed partly because savers are asking for it, and partly because it generates higher margins for the asset management firms. And then I think you've got a definite change in the political mood music. I mean, you had Donald Trump, who was kind of like to bully and bribe companies. Um, that, that was one phenomenon, a very populist one. Joe Biden's different, but his sort of form of big government does ask for an alliance really between the government and business in the cause of national renewal. Why shouldn't businesses be acting to, to satisfy this consumer demand if, as you say, consumers want firms to stand up for their values? Isn't this a big business opportunity? Yeah, well, I think that gets at the sort of heart of both why uh, capitalism is dynamic and adaptable, but also the, the sort of limits of business. So, um, you know, in a competitive market, a, a company seeking long-term profits has to adapt and anticipate as society changes. So, you know, so for example, people today want green cars, and as a result, you have Tesla, and that in turn forces General Motors to change their behaviour. So there is a kind of natural element of competition and profit-seeking that leads companies to react very fast to social concerns. I think the trouble is when companies step over that line, enter the political fray in a way that isn't really relevant to the interests of their owners and is, isn't directly related to their business. What are the damaging consequences of, of business becoming more involved in politics? It's a good question. I mean, I think the starting point should be that, of course, when companies intervene and use their power to uh, support causes that one believes in, it's, it's quite an attractive proposition in a way. It feels like everyone's pushing on your side. The difficulty arises when they disagree with your position, and inevitably because America is a very divided place, that, that's going to happen all the time. Um, and, you know, companies don't really have a source of legitimacy, and nor are they actually particularly trusted in general as institutions. And I think the result is you get somewhat unaccountable CEOs getting involved in, in very difficult and important constitutional questions without a particularly clear mandate. And I think over time, if that becomes habitual and there are, there are more areas where companies weigh in, in on the political system, it obviously raises the specter of, of a kind of damage to the legitimacy, I think, of democracy, but also the risk of the kind of croniest relationship between business and government. Is there a realistic framework for, for businesses to, to deal with all this? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, one mantra is, is stakeholderism, which you should take all stakeholders' viewpoints into account. And the difficulty with that is it doesn't really give any 
methodology for deciding and prioritising what stakeholders want if their desires conflict, which they very often do. And I think that does lead you back to the kind of enlightened long-term interests of owners. It's interesting, Milton Friedman, the high priest of, of shareholder value, whose work is often misinterpreted, but one of the conditions he set for the view that owners should determine the interests and behaviour of companies was that the the economy was competitive. Um, And that's because competition forces companies to respond to what consumers want. If if staff don't like the values or behaviour of a particular company, they can easily switch to a different one. Um, And it's really that mechanism that that provides a, a kind of diffuse dynamic system. Now, you referred to Milton Friedman there, and he he wrote his famous op-ed about 50 years ago. If you were to refresh that for today, what what do you think it would look like? Well, I think companies competing can evolve with society in a very healthy way. I think the other thing that could be made clearer is that if owners do want to pursue social goals as well as wealth maximisation in the long run, um, it's perfectly okay for them to do that. So, you know, if you're Patagonia, the clothing company, and you want to pursue environmental or ecological objectives, um, great, go for it if your owners agree. There is probably a, a kind of extreme condition in which the, the framework I've, I've discussed no longer holds. If, if an event happened which was a suspension of the Constitution in America, perhaps if the storming of the Capitol had intensified, we'd be in that territory um, then I think you could argue that, it, that you know there's a sort of higher moral duty of business to intervene. The difficulty with what's happening at the moment is it involves a law that a, a, a state legislature has passed rather than a kind of circumvention of the entire constitutional apparatus in the US. And furthermore, there are a number of similar constitutional arguments raging, like, for example, the filibuster or the expansion of the Supreme Court in America. I think governments have a clear role in actually protecting the political system from corporate influence. But I think that the bigger point here is simply that protection of fundamental rights in America and the resolution of America's big political divisions, that is ultimately a task and a job for the political system and the courts, not for corporate boardrooms. Patrick Fowles, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachana. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Next, China's government has long wanted more control of big tech. Now it's taking it. After years of tolerating companies' unbridled expansion, the state is rewriting the rules for how billionaires can behave and who controls their assets, including vast stores of data. In the latest development, yesterday, Monday, April the 12th, the Chinese fintech giant Ant Group was forced to face up to a very different future than the one its founder, Jack Ma, dreamed of just six short months ago. Ant's fate has been up in the air for several months. Its $37 billion IPO was cancelled in November. Jack Ma, the founder, has been under a lot of government pressure. 
Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor. So Ant will become a financial holding company. All of its businesses will be regulated. Essentially, that means it will look much more like a bank by the time they get to the end of this process. Tell us a little bit more about what that means in practice for Ant. So how will it change? Ant operates one of the world's biggest mobile payments platforms. It's called Alipay. If you've used a Chinese super app like this before, you'll know that these things are gateways to all sorts of different types of products, online shopping, food delivery, ride hailing, as well as a suite of financial products, insurance, loans, wealth management. And a lot of these things actually overlap as well. So if you're on Taobao, which is the e-commerce site that Alibaba operates, you'll be offered loans to, to buy things when you're you know, surfing the web. It's, it's a very popular offering. So the government wants Ant to cut back on some of these links between payments and financial services. Investors, I don't think, are going to appreciate this development. And it's not just Jack Ma's business empire and the firing line, is it? What's, what's at stake here? The fintech industry that we're talking about right now is huge. I mean, whatever happens to Ant is going to apply across the board. It's a very big change for fintech in China. The Communist Party is worried about the dominance of these tech companies in everyday life. They're not thrilled that the, the bosses of these tech companies have been setting the tone for entrepreneurs everywhere in China. So they, they want these companies to fall in line. We've seen some of them do that already. So Pony Ma, who's the founder of Tencent, um, which is a massive gaming and social media company, he publicly stated that he wanted stricter regulation on his business recently. Um, it seems like a, a clear signal that he is willing to accept whatever the party wants him to do. Colin Huang, the founder of Pinduoduo, he resigned last month from his position as, as chairman. We don't really know why he did this, but we do know that he'd just become one of the richest entrepreneurs in China. He surpassed Jack Ma in wealth. His company had become one of the largest e-commerce groups. One of the common interpretations is that it's a bad time to be the top entrepreneur in China. Tell us a little bit about the stock market reaction to all this. These reforms to the industry have been somewhat devastating for a lot of these companies. Ant, for example, in the run-up to its IPO, it was valued at around $300 billion. It's lost at least a third of that since then, possibly more with these more recent developments. For the sector in general, there's been a massive sell-off between mid-February and the beginning of April. So when you look at all the Chinese tech companies, they've wiped out about $700 billion in, in shareholder value. W one thing that is notable is that Alibaba on Monday rallied quite a bit. So it was handed a $2.8 billion fine on Saturday. And on Monday, it experienced quite a, a decent rally. One of the interpretations of this is that investors think that Alibaba could be out of the woods. There's a sense that the rules are being rewritten for Chinese tech companies. And it's things like the ant restructuring that are really going to tell us, you know, what these companies are going to look like in the future. I think it will take one of these restructurings to really kind of figure out how these companies will be valued in the future. So unlike the sell-off in the U.S., this is, a, I think, a much deeper 
change to the industry. I imagine this will have a, a chilling effect for, for quite a while. There's another sort of foundational element to the changes facing Ant, and that's the obligation to share data, which is surely its most valuable resource. What are the implications of that? Data is a crucial part of, of Ant's business, um, and the government has always been very interested in using the data to better score credit. At this point, the data is siloed with, within specific companies, but um, there's clear indications that the government wants to get its hands on that. There's a good chance that Ant will set up a personal credit reporting company and then apply for a license. Investors say this is, you know, this is a good thing if they're able to, to pull it off, but th there's also some, some unclear parts of it as well. So at this point, these types of licenses have only been distributed to state and private joint ventures, and the, the state companies have the controlling stake in them. So Don, I imagine that foreign investors and big shareholders in these companies might not be very pleased with the turn of events. Absolutely not. Foreign investors have been burned by Chinese companies in the past when there have been regulatory changes. So this isn't anything new. Just over the past few days, we've seen some investors reducing their stakes. Uh, Naspers, the South African group, sold a block of Tencent stock worth about $15 billion. So there's definitely uh, movement among the, the holdings it's important to also say that a lot of investors are, are trapped in the Ant deal. So because Ant wasn't able to IPO, you have companies like BlackRock or Singapore's GIC that are, that are waiting for this IPO and they can't get out of the, the company uh, until that happens. As you sort of hinted at, Chinese firms are no strangers to abrupt changes of fortune. But what next for China's big tech firms? The government doesn't want to destroy these business models. I think the best case for Ant and, and other Chinese fintech groups is that the relationship between the companies and banks are fine-tuned. Consumer lending can be done very easily, but they don't build up um, unnecessary risk. The worst case situation is some kind of nationalization for these companies. We've seen in recent years uh, aggressive tycoons such as Ambong Insurance has been nationalized and its, its founder was, was thrown in jail. I think at this point, it's very unlikely this will happen to the tech groups. But it, it's still very important to understand that the companies that Tencent and Alibaba were over the past couple of years, there's significant changes coming through and, and they will look very different um, in the coming years. Don Wynan, thank you very much. Thank you. To learn more about how this new master plan for Chinese big tech will transform one of the world's most innovative and valuable industries, subscribe to The Economist. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the notes for this episode. And finally, the past year has seen a phenomenal surge of interest in cryptocurrencies. Chief among them is Bitcoin. Depending on how you count, it's currently enjoying its fourth big bull run, today exceeding $62,000 for the first time. More bridges are being built between the anarchic crypto world and conventional finance. One of them is Coinbase, one of the world's biggest crypto firms, which is due to list on the Nasdaq tomorrow, April 14th. So Coinbase is a marketplace. It's an exchange for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether or, or, or even Dogecoin, if you're feeling cheeky. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. The best guess is the valuation will be somewhere in the region of $100 billion, which is not far off what Facebook 
listed at uh, when it went public in 2012. That's an extraordinary valuation for an exchange. The Nasdaq itself has a market cap of only $25 billion. So why are expectations so high around Coinbase? I think two reasons. One is the company's profits and revenue have both risen strongly lately. Uh, profits are about $800 million on revenues of about $1.8 billion. That's in the, the fourth quarter of, of 2020. It's a big player in the, the cryptocurrency world. So about a tenth of the value of all cryptocurrencies are held on accounts with Coinbase. And unlike a lot of exchanges, it's stayed on relatively good terms uh, with regulators. So you know, cryptocurrency started as a sort of anti-establishment project. And I think a lot of the exchanges have you know, tried their best to avoid interacting with regulators in any way, which hasn't always gone well. It's never suffered a really big hack either, which is another common fate of cryptocurrency exchanges. And the other thing I think is just that cryptocurrencies, they're very popular at the moment. Their prices swing up and down pretty wildly. And at the moment, we're in the middle of, of a big upswing. Cryptocurrencies, and especially Bitcoin, seem to have a particular kind of appeal. They're millennial friendly. They're seemingly unsullied by the past sins of the financial establishment. But there are overlooked costs that are becoming increasingly apparent, aren't there? Yeah, there are. I think it's important to remember this started as a sort of techno-libertarian project where the idea was, let's create a currency with absolutely no central oversight at all. So no banks, no central banks, no regulators, no nothing. In that sense, yes, it, it, it is unsullied by by the past sins of the financial establishment. There are plenty of sins of its own, of course. One of its big uses is for buying illegal things online. And people might remember the Silk Road online marketplace, whose uh, founder was eventually jailed for commissioning an assassination. That transacted entirely in Bitcoin. The other set of concerns, maybe besides sort of sort of criminality and, and, and fraud, which are still pretty common, it's environmental impact. We've had several estimates of the carbon impact of, of cryptocurrencies, and we now have a new one. There's a paper uh, just published in Nature Communications, led by two Chinese researchers, Dabo Guan at Tsinghua University and uh, Xu Yang Wang at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. They try and model what uh, the process of Bitcoin mining might mean for China's efforts to decarbonize its economy in the future. And why is Bitcoin's carbon footprint so high? Its carbon emissions are high because its demand for electricity is very high. And its demand for electricity is very high because of this thing we talked about earlier, this desire to make a currency that, that has no central point of control. If you have an ordinary sort of electronic transaction, if I pay you £10, that's all handled by some central authority, by a bank, by Visa, someone like that. Bitcoin doesn't have a sort of central authority like that. And because it's an electronic currency, you get this problem where you know, all Bitcoin is, is a series of ones and zeros on a computer and computers are very good at copying data. So it will be very easy in theory for me to send you 10 Bitcoin and then send my friend 10 Bitcoin and then send, you know, Zanny, the economist editor, the same 10 Bitcoin over and over and over again. And this is called the double spending problem. And the way they got around that problem was, OK, we'll still have a database, but we'll just distribute a copy of the database to everyone who uses the system. This is the famous blockchain. Then what you need is some way to update that database to take account of, of sort of recent transactions. And the way Bitcoin does this is through a system of proof of work where some users who are called miners, they basically compete with each other to solve mathematical problems, which are hard to solve, but it's easy to check the solution once someone's found one to make sure it's right. So the person who first successfully solves one of these puzzles gets to add a new block of transactions to the blockchain. And as a reward for putting that effort in, they get rewarded with new Bitcoins. And these mining rewards are the only source of new Bitcoins in the system. So at the moment, if I successfully mine a block, 
I get 6.25 bitcoins. And so, Tim, presumably doing those calculations consumes energy and costs money. It does, yes, because there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And when you've got people competing for these rewards, the system sort of tends towards spending as much electricity as, as the reward is worth. You know, if, if, if I get $300,000 for mining a block, then it's worth my while spending up to $300,000 in electricity to try and make sure that I'm the one who mines each block first. And so you, you end up with this sort of red queens race where the higher the price of Bitcoin goes, the greater the rewards to mining, which means that the miners have incentives to buy more and more computers. You know, they fill these massive warehouses with these things. What really kind of turbocharges this is that the way... Bitcoin system works is it tries to make sure that one new block is mined on average every 10 minutes. So if someone comes in with a huge pile of new computing power and the blocks start to appear faster, the system will will change the difficulty of the puzzles. It'll make things harder so that it, it trends back towards 10 minutes. And so the amount of electricity spent processing each of Bitcoin's transactions just goes up and up and up and up and up. Who are the big players in Bitcoin mining and which countries would incur these huge energy costs? Well, so this is the other sort of irony in a way, because, again, you know, it was designed as a, as a decentralized system without any, any sort of one authority. But what's happened is that mining's become highly specialized. So a handful of sort of big groups, people like Poolin or Antpool or BTC, they control most of the mining power within Bitcoin. And again, it's hard to know for sure, but maybe about three quarters of it happens in, in, in China. China's electricity system is still, you know, relatively dirty. There's still quite a lot of coal power in there. And again, it's hard to get, you know, really concrete numbers, but but all the, the statistics on, on, you know, how the blockchain's working are publicly available. So you can work backwards from those. And there's one estimate that's been around for a while that sort of tracks the, blo- the blockchain activity fairly closely. They reckon that at the moment, Bitcoin's carbon emissions are roughly equal to those of Hong Kong. This new nature paper that we mentioned they use economic modelling and they reckon that by 2024, assuming that, that China doesn't do anything to try and, and sort of push back on this, you could be looking at consuming as much energy as Italy or Saudi Arabia with annual carbon emissions, maybe somewhere in the neighbourhood of 130 million tonnes, which are not far off what Nigeria emits at the moment. Those numbers are huge, Tim. How reliable do you think these predictions are? You can never really predict the price of an asset, right? I mean, if you can, you certainly wouldn't publish your methodology <laughs> in a scientific paper. You'd have retired to your private <laughs> island by now. As we said earlier, you know, electricity consumption of Bitcoin and therefore its carbon emissions depend crucially on its price. So the paper assumes, for sort of lack of a better alternative, that in the long run, the price will go up because the amount of new Bitcoin being created by design halves every four years. The block rewards halve every four years. And the logic is that makes Bitcoin scarce and therefore more valuable. So you should look at them as sort of guidelines and possibilities rather than than sort of firm predictions. But like I said, there is other research that looks at or tries to estimate Bitcoin's carbon consumption right now. This is in a similar ballpark. The annual carbon footprint of, of Hong Kong, that's an awful lot of carbon to emit for a currency that, you know, when it comes to actually buying and selling things is still a pretty fringe business. So for a WYSI asset that proponents would like to say is the currency of the future, it's actually surprisingly reliant on old school technology and coal consumption. It is, that's right. You know, Bitcoin, as you say, the currency of the future, but at the moment at least powered by the uh, the energy source of the past. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachana. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating or better yet, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The producer is Amiko Shortino Nolan. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.